Hi everyone, I'm Aaron Noonan. Welcome to another episode of the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Holden. Celebrating its 50th anniversary of factory involvement in Australian motorsport and at the great race at Bathurst. And when it comes to Holden, there are few bigger names in the brand's history at Bathurst and in supercars than the person on this episode. He's a five-time championship winner, a six-time Bathurst 1000 winner, and the last driver to win at the Mountain while he owned the factory Holden team. That's right, it's Mark Scaife. Now, a few highlights from our chat ahead, which we had in Mark's office in Melbourne. He talks about his family's history at Bathurst, including its involvement in a Holden win in the 60s, what it's like walking into the HRT, that's the Holden Racing Team, of course, to be Peter Brock's co-driver in what was going to be his final tilt at winning his 10th Bathurst. He opens up on his time owning and running HRT, including the unexpected merchandise item that proved one of the team's biggest sellers. And no, you'll have to listen to find out what it is. So here we go. Buckle up. Time to start. Mark Scaife on the V8's Loop podcast, powered by Holden. Mark, thank you, firstly, for having us here at Scaife Racing HQ. We're surrounded by some fantastic memorabilia on the walls here that probably lead to some of the conversation <laughs> topics today. Uh, I want to focus on your time in factory Holden land. I mean, obviously, you've got a, a Nissan history and an open wheel history and lots of other stuff, but I want to focus on that that HRT period, mainly because this is the 50th anniversary of the first factory Holden run at Bathurst, 1969. So the first question is, where were you in 1960? I, I know I was not around in 69, <laughs> but where were you? Um, Noons, that's a very good question because I was a very young bloke. I was only two years of age, uh, but my father was involved in preparing Bruce McPhee's Wyong Motors uh, Monaros in those days. So if you remember in the uh, factory Holden dealer team days, there were plenty of other people who ran cars against them um, and Holden dealers in those days could afford to actually run a car. Mm. So a little provincial regional dealership like Wild Motors, which was owned by the Levenspiel family. Um, they backed Bruce McPhee and obviously they had good results prior, but uh, I was only two. So you don't quite remember watching the 69 <laughs> race on TV? I, I certainly don't. I, I have got a photo of me sitting on the back of the car, but that's about it. <laughs> oh, well, close, close. So when did you first lob at Bathurst? We know about it as a driver later on, but as a kid in the, the paddock, your dad raced obviously, but when did you first turn up there? Uh, would have been about 76, I think. So dad, dad raced there in a team with Barry Seaton. So they were, um, Amco sponsored, um, Capris and the Capris sort of the, the three liter series in those days was actually quite strong because it was Mazda RX3s versus Triumph Dolomites versus Capris versus BMWs versus Alphas and stuff. So there was actually quite a, good um, proliferation of smaller cars and that um, under three litre series was quite strong in Sydney especially. So that was my my earliest memories of going to Bathurst as a young bloke. And is this as a kid watching every lap and every car on the track or mucking around playing in the back of the paddock not really paying any attention to the car racing? Oh no, no totally engrossed, totally engrossed. I mean I, my earliest memories of car racing effectively was when Dad had a XU1 in uh, end of 73, 74, and uh, I would go to Amaru Park and sit under the Rod Hodson um, tower, which was the media room effectively, um, and watch them come through the last corner. And uh, those days of Amaru Park and how strong Australian racing was, but specifically Sydney. Sydney was you know, probably the mecca in those days in reality. Um, and Colin Bond versus Peter Brock in next year ones, it doesn't get any better. I mean, lap after lap after lap. Bob Morris, you know, was was always really hard to beat around there too. And uh, any time that Big Falcons arrived to try to take on XU ones around Amory Park, it was always it was always fantastic. And of course, Bondy was kind of the Sydney HDT guy. Brock was kind of the Melbourne HDT guy. So every time a HDT car raced at Amory or Oran Park, it was pretty much Bondy. Yep. Yeah, well, that's right. And. The times that, uh, you know, you get the very best fields, um, you know, guys like Fred Gibson and John Goss and all those, they were Sydney-based, you know, the, the race teams. Well, if you think, you know, in those days with Oran Park, Warwick Farm and Amaru, um, it was very much a Sydney-centric touring car thing. Um, but uh, those races up there were fantastic. And 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 wasn't just that. So guys like Pete Gagan in sports sedan, because sports sedan racing was really strong in those days too. 
Um, so you, you used to see a lot of really high-level drivers, and, and I used to watch their art, you know. So the final corner at Amaru Park was sort of third-gear corner, and, and I still to this day still prescribe to, to risk versus reward. So when you park a fence right next to the track, it does make a big difference to who's good and who's bad. And uh, watching the very best drivers right through to me being young and watching Jim Rich through there, the very best drivers and their technique of how they turned the car at the corner, how they slid the car through there. You know, Alan Grice was based there in those days, mm. so they did a, a, thousands of laps. Frank Gardner had his race team there yeah. as a consequence, um, um, you know, testing all the time. I, I used to I used to love Amaru. I mean, Amaru, in a weird way, is very Bathurst-like because if you went off anywhere, you hit the fence. <laughs> yeah. And and it was it was – a, there was almost a different level of risk between Amaru and Oran Park. I used to love both of them, and they were totally different in terms of their characteristics. But Amaru Park, I mean, uh, you know, I raced there, and I mean, you wouldn't do it now. I mean, you go there in a in a Australian Drivers' Championship race, and in, in like you, open wheel of Formula Holden, Formula Holden, going quick. hard, you seriously fast cars down to you know what we used to call dead stop. It was dead stop, all right. Mm, you know, mm. the concrete corner, wall straight in front, straight in front, no runoff road at all. And, um, you know, the very best drivers were always really good there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a racetrack that I really, I really miss because of not only the history, but the style of track that it was. You had fast corners, um, as I said, very unforgiving layout. Undulation too, which is a thing that we sort of miss on a lot of places these days. Yep. Um, we talked about your early memories of, of Bathurst. Uh, because we're focusing on the factory era that you would obviously f- become a part of later on, do you remember when you first met guys like Brock and Bond and Harry Firth? And do you remember that sort of era of remembering those guys and the market left on you? Were you a, were you a Holden kid? Were you a Ford kid? Were you a Russell Sc- Did you follow your dad? Or what, what were you? What, what tribe were you with? Well... Firstly, I, I had a love of cars because of my <clears throat> automotive background. So, you know, my grandfather set up tyre and automotive stores basically straight after the war. So we we were always around cars. Dad did some car racing when I was young. So I basically was – I was hooked. You know, I'd, I'd go to um, to all the races with him and would help him all, you know – Probably hinder Help him. or hinder, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, in those days, I mean, I could, I could fit a tyre when I was seven or eight. So, you know, that was that was basically the, our lives. And that was our business that was able to to get Dad into a situation where he could actually buy a race car and go racing. So, you know, we, we were very different. It was very different in those days. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my dad was actually a much better race car driver than his results would indicate. Because, but he was a businessman racer. So when people were off basically testing, Dad was working. Mm. And and one of the things around car racing is that people would never actually factor in how much the business would lose when the owner-operator was away. Mm. So, you know, if you actually had to cost what car racing really meant, Not it good. was a lot more money than you think. <laughs> so that was a very long-winded way of answering that, yeah, I was, I was hooked with car racing and I was basically with Dad. Having said that, Dad raced against Brock and Bond and a lot of those and – and I was I was sort of firmly fixed on those superstars of the day. I was probably a Bondi fan from Sydney more than anything. I used to love his his car control. There was a very big uh, rally championship round. Um, the two Geo rally actually it was a radio station sponsored, and then a Santa took it over. But the big rally championship round when uh, all the superstars from all around the world would come out and Bondi was in an escort, mm. we, uh, Dad and I would go out there in the middle of the night and watch the things arrow through the through the forestry. And you could hear Bond coming because he was the one that was on the loud pedal the, lo- the longest. Um, so there was a lot of car racing stuff that, that I was exposed to. Bondi was certainly a favourite. And I was, I was a Holden man because we had basically Holdens. Um, Dad's first race car was an XU1. Um, all our factory utes and one tonners and all that stuff—they're all Holden utes. Um, so you know, I was I was definitely a red man from day one. Well, you had a red laser as well, so you stayed <laughs> red in some ways. Exactly. <laughs> but for a lot of people who uh, would really didn't follow you at that point, you're, young, you're a young bloke. You pop up later on and lasers and uh, get a crack with Peter Williamson. And people probably really only identify you as a from the fan base as a Nissan guy. Or a Holden guy. There's, there's kind of one or the other. It depends what era you were, you were kind of born in. Talk to me about the aura of factory teams and trying to get into one, seeing what resource they have, see what advantages they have, the disadvantages. Uh, you've lived 
the life both in the car as a factory driver slash owner owner as well. Talking about the aura of being a factory backed driver and and the whole process because it comes with a whole pile of things that other things don't. It's a really good question because it has a level of complexity around it that's almost unknown. Um, Everybody aspires to either want to drive or own a factory team. But the connotation of a factory team immediately says that if you're the Nissan factory team, that everybody owns it with you. Same with Holden. Mm. So if you're a Nissan follower and you've got a factory team, then it's my team. So it's a bit like you know you being a Hawthorne supporter. It's, you feel like it's your mm, team. Mm. And that has um, some really great things about it because it has a level of following and fan support and merchandise sales and 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 an aura around the the status of being a factory team is immense. You know, there's 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 lots of great things that come with it. And that's not necessarily even from the factory per se. So think about the tiers. So you basically you've got a CEO or an, and a board who who says we're going to spend the money. So it downstreams through the marketing department, it goes out into the engineering department, it filters through PR and corporate affairs. It ends up even in spare parts land because people are selling stuff that that's got a some sort of HRT or Nissan backed item that's in the uh, in the merch mm. store, right through to every dealer, right through to every service staff, every person that's either selling a car or servicing a car on site. They're fielding questions from customers, so it's got this this immense sort of layer of of support. The negative is that as a consequence of them feeling like that's their team, then everyone's got a view on it. Um, <laughs> so on a Monday morning at the water cooler or the or the, or the coffee shop, um, you know, if you've had a bad pit stop, then the world should have been doing the pit stop. Yeah, um, just ask them. Exactly, exactly. So there's a level of, of scrutiny that's, that's unsurpassed. And, uh, you know, I've had some of those times where it can be really cruel, you know. I mean, at 1992 at Bathurst, Leon Daphne and his wife Kerry were standing at the back of all the crowd when the crowd were going mad. Kerry was actually whacking them with umbrellas, you know. So she, so she was so vigorous around, you know, the the whole thing. It was, a, it was yeah. a really, it was quite scary, you know. These people were feral, full on. And the managing director and his wife, they they didn't like what they were saying. Yeah, they were so, literally in the trenches. So in the trenches, and and Leon was a you know massive Richmond supporter, you know, great man, superstar around sport, loved sport. Um, and Kerry was 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 wagging the umbrellas, uh, right through to the point of say 2006, where Garth Tander and I, Holden Racing Team, shortest price favourites in history, line up w- at Winks odds, line up to win Australia's biggest race, and within one kilometre are out. Mm. And so you you end up back in Melbourne the week after, at board meetings saying we don't really know why the clutch failed, and and so you have. This level of scrutiny, whether it's a fan base one like it was in '92, or a or a corporate board level of scrutiny, that was um, it was pretty uh, it was pretty tough. And then you add the complexity in of being team owner as well as driver, so the pressure goes up a whole nother notch beyond your own personal pressure that you put on yourself to do a good job in the car. And then it becomes the sponsors, the Holden. Everybody, um, do you look back on that time because there was so much going on and the way it all happened with TWR and then there was license issues and all the good stuff? Do you look back on that and think, oh, if I'd just been driving, could I have gone longer? Would it have been better? Could I have gone for longer and would the results have been better? I know you can't rewind the clock and, and history, but looking back on it now, do you do you still maintain that you did the right thing that for, for Mark's gay for the driver, let alone the betterment of the business or any of that sort of stuff? Uh, yeah, well, that's probably where you've got to separate it, Nerns, to be to be fair. Um, it was a very complex time. I mean, the, the amount of people and level of interest from all around the world to own the factory Holden team was extraordinary. When did it first pop on your radar? <clears throat> was this something that had bubbled away for a little while or did it all come to the surface when everybody else found out about it or had you ever harboured a desire to, to own the team? Uh, no, it was too early for me to be honest. I, I hadn't thought about that at, at that stage. Um, I had thought, and uh, from a succession planning point of view, when I was say forty or whatever, to have a race team and to be involved in a from a business perspective, I'd certainly thought of that. And John Crennan and I had worked away at that 
But I, I was acro- across it pretty early in 2002. I mean, in 2002, probably from August or September on, there were some cash flow issues that I was aware of. I probably shouldn't have been, but I was aware of. And I was in the midst of re-signing, and John and I had basically done a new five-year deal um, in my my best year, you know, of 2002 mm. with, with the championship in Clipsal and Bathurst, et cetera. So... I was committed from a driver perspective to stay at HRT. Uh, Crown and I had a really strong relationship. You know, he and I, we've always got on really well. And, and, you know, I found him very much a mentor from a business perspective. And, and from an automotive industry uh, perspective, I, I don't think I've ever seen someone as, as savvy around the car industry as, as he is. So, so that was all swimming along quite well until the TWR blow up. And, um, no, it was, it was really stressful for everybody. I mean, if, if you think, you know, you, you're one of the many people working at that place at the time and, you know, people have got mortgages and kids going to schools and all that stuff that all of a sudden there's this level of trepidation and nervousness that was unsurpassed. So it, it was even – it was sort of worse than when the cigarette legislation came in. So at the end of 95 when that happened and it blew Australian sport up and $110 million went out of Australian sport and – whether you're at cricket or rugby league or AFL or motor racing, everybody had a wow, this is big time now. But it was it was worse than that because this was the factory team that couldn't, as a consequence of the rules, couldn't be owned by the factory, but was effectively out of business. And we should say that it couldn't be owned because that's the rules of V8 supercars that a manufacturer can't own a team, which I guess safeguards against what we've seen in other categories where basically if a manufacturer leaves the team's gone, the series quite often falls over in other categories. So, yeah, it's, it was a, it's a rule and it still is. Yep, and, and that really was a big consequence of, of uh, TWR's receivership at, at the time. Um, and a, a group of senior Holden people got involved in going and rescuing it from the receivers and they were able to basically take it out of, out of the receiver bundle and were able to negotiate with Tiga and Avesco locally to basically say we've got to preserve this, give us a period of time that we are allowed to own it out of out of season effectively, and we'll find the right owner and make sure that we meet all the the necessary regulations and provisions, which um, which basically happened just in and after Clipsal five hundred of that year, so um, of two thousand and three. So that was yeah, it was pretty stressful. There was a bit going on in that period on and off the track. I'll rewind back a bit to – you talked about John Crennan and he's obviously an integral part in the history of, of HRT and, and HSV. When did the wheels start to get you in the door at the Holden Racing Team? He'd had a couple of cracks, hadn't he, and hadn't quite got it done. Yeah, we, 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 uh, we'd had a couple of meetings and, and uh, he'd told Tom that that was his plan. Um, our first meeting was – in 1994, and he was trying to get me to come across for 95. Uh, my loyalty with Fred and, and the team was such that I stayed in, in 95, and look, I, I, could have, I could have easily gone in, in 95, and then, and then again in 96. Um, as it turned out, uh, sometimes loyalty knocks you around um, because it was pretty, pretty torrid at the end of the cigarette thing with, with Winfield. And we went through... Uh, you know, 18 months or two years of, of real drama. And then basically in 97, um, we ended up coming to, coming to terms to uh, go and join Brock and drive with Brock uh, under a, a sort of a, a, a quasi handshake of replacing Brock um, when he retired at the end of 97. So it was a, it was an understanding that you would, but it wasn't <clears throat> quite locked, but it was, yeah, yeah. it'll be right. It'll be right. Mm. Tell me about that 97 Jura <clears throat> campaign. For those that plenty of our listeners will remember it vividly with Brock's last, first, last, no, first, last Bathurst. <laughs> had a couple of goes at it. Um, that car was a rocket ship, that 05 mobile HRT VS Commodore as it was back then. Um, talk me through that. Well, that car, I mean, it was an unbelievably quick car. You had pole at Bathurst and you guys led at both races early before there was a couple of dramas that got in the way, but I don't think anyone for pace probably would have been able to touch it. Yeah, I mean, it was extraordinary. I was blown away by how good the Bridgestone tyre was and, and probably how good the whole of the team was at that time. Um, so we qualified pole at both Sandown and Bathurst, 
um, it was the first time that anyone broke a 10 at Bathurst. Mm, so which was a, big at the time. A 9-8 in the warm-up before the top 10 shootout, and I did a 10-03 in the top 10 shootout. So, um, yeah, extraordinary. It was fantastic. I mean, the car was just just superb, and uh, I think we were almost a second faster than the next car. So, yeah, it was it was plenty fast enough to have won. <clears throat> and when Lowndes crashed out behind me in that race, we just back, we backed it off. We, we were cruising. Um, not not to say that the, that did anything to uh, to help the engine issue that ended up putting us out, but it was cruel because I, you know Peter and I we'd formed a pretty cool relationship around that because um, I think he he genuinely thought that this was a ticket to win his tenth, and based on our qualifying and. And his performance, I mean, he drove unbelievably in the first part of that race. I mean, he and Larry Perkins, that battle that they had at the start of that race was fantastic. They broke the lap record. Mm. Brock was the fastest car. And and when he handed it over, we, as I said, when Lowndes crashed uh, the top of the hill behind me, um, really there was no one else that was able to, to win that day unless we had a drama. Um, and as it turned out, we did. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars, unforgettable. The first time you go there, obviously, normally there's pressure because you're in the factory team. But you're with the icon who's having his last go, who everyone's <laughs> come to see, and then that all, that all happens. So I think it's bad enough having a factory car that doesn't go any good at Bathurst, but then with all of those other elements and factors that come with it, I mean, the lines for autographs were out of control. I mean, he barely could get time to get in the car, let alone do the race. But uh, yeah. that was it's hard to get your head around when, <clears throat> when the big names depart, when Dick Johnson finishes or Peter Brock or Larry Perkins, that Brock retirement tour of that year. I remember, I remember lining up trying to get into the Sandown 500 in the rain of that morning, uh, a crowd I've never seen since at that track. Uh, it's hard to wrap your head around unless you look at the old videos to see mm-hmm. how big it was and how much of a big thing and how many people there were. I mean, that was big ticket stuff, really oh, big, extraordinary, unbelievable. And he he created <clears throat> so much of that because of his access, and for lots of different reasons. Because his emphasis around him making the car better had had almost waned to a point that he was. A professional um, signer of autographs at that stage, <laughs> who just happened to also drive a race, drive car. A race car. So, so and and that level of demand, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, and you know what he's like. He he was just extraordinary in that way. Uh, and he worked out. You know, he was he was far more savvy than uh, than people would think based on all of the stuff that happened out of polarizer land. And he's falling out with GM. I mean, even to have him back in GM fold was a great barometer for what his brand brought to the sport and for and for him to be back at Holden. So, you know, basically ten years after his massive falling out, he was back there as the as the, the, the white haired boy. He was he was extraordinary. And and don't worry, I mean John Crennan was a mastermind in the back of all that too, because it served their purposes. Um, the reality around his access was was unbelievable. And I remember having a real heart to heart with Glenn Seaton as Brock and Johnson, you know, were retiring. And there was a group of those guys of the day, you know. Moffat was mm. recently gone. The Jimmy Richards was sort of he was he was doing less. Um, Larry Perkins was still going okay, but you know Russell Ingle was probably beating him in terms of his outright pace. So there was a there was a bit of a landscape change going on, and and Glenn and I, you know, we were, you know, we've been mates since we were really really young, and and we were having a talk about, you know, what do we have to do to to keep the brand, you know, to keep the access up to keep all those things going and it meant that we all that we all had to work hard you know it meant that the radio station would ring and you know can you do the interview wherever it was or can you come into the television station at seven o'clock in the morning and do do whatever it was a sports thing or a breakfast show or whatever and that level of access we we actually had to pick up that slack um and it was conscious you know that was that was something that uh, that was a, almost a legacy effect of how popular they were and and the level of access that they that they effectively allowed. You know, mm. it's unsurpassed. I mean, mm. you, you think about that in Australian sport. There is no way that Nathan Buckley will let you stand there two minutes before 
steel side bottom or Pendlebury no. bowl out. Because stop it. No, no, way. no other sport. Lucky if it's a day before. No, no other sport. Mm. So, so, and when Craig Kelly come to work for me when we had HRT, he, he was just absolutely blown away by by what was allowed effectively. And still is. And still is. You know, and, the fact and, that there's a driver on the grid at Bathurst just before they get in the car for their grand final and someone on the grid gets an autograph or a selfie or a photo or totally. can even say hello to them there you go. is mind-blowing to, is. To, to other sports in our world. Totally. And, then yeah, that's one of the cool things about our game. Um, I'm not saying it's actually the best thing, but it's a cool thing about our game. Speaking of Brock, you've got a good <clears throat> Brock yarn, one that you might not have told or one that you haven't told for a while or – a bit of insight. I mean, there's just about every book, TV show, documentary has been done on PB, but what have you got for us that you can give us in terms of sleuth gold? Oh, look, I've got a 1,000 with Brock because we ended up – we were quite competitive, obviously, against each other for many, many years. Well, um, did your relationship change when you drove together? Or were you? Would you say you were close beforehand until the HRT deal or – we were we were we were friends, but we weren't close until we until we drove together. And then, really, when we drove together, we really bonded up um, because I, I think he had faith that I was trying to make the car better and was going to hopefully help him win something that was really you know a big target for him. But prior to that, you know, we'd we'd had some pretty hard races, um, and uh, and you know, I, I, I always had immense respect for him because clearly he was one of the best drivers of all time. But one of our classics is that we would always, you know, it was always a bit more fun in those days. You know, it was just it was always a bit more relaxed. So we come out of Simmons Plains one night. Just so happens that we're both driving out together, and in my car there was Jim Richards, Freddie Gibson, and and Pete McKay. So so he's my my car's full, and so is Brock's. And we're blazing out the gate. And if you remember, you used to have to go up sort of over the hill, around the hill and down, and then back onto the onto the main road, back into Launceston. So as we're blazing up there, we're doing warp speed in the in the dirt. And these and are in lone two, cars or two, higher cars? Two, two, well, one's a, one's a lone car and one's a higher car. <laughs> I'm not sure which is but better or worse. It doesn't but, matter really. But still get treated the same yeah. way. <laughs> not very nicely. <laughs> and uh, we we get to the top of the hill. And we're both sideways, and I flicked down the inside of him, and sort of half shortcutted the road to get down off this this ditch, which I didn't realise was that high. <laughs> so as as I fire down the inside of him, and I've got him, I had to get down this like three foot drop, and as I come off the three foot drop sideways, it pulls all those plastic trays from under the car. <laughs> Which meant that I still we had to go. There was actually a big gum tree in the centre, so I was firing down the inside of him, across the ditch, pulled all that stuff up from under. But I got to the to the corner first. With the bit that matters, I felt like I, I felt like it was a really big win. <laughs> Next day, he comes in in the morning, presented all that plastic stuff back to me. <laughs> so it was very funny. He walked straight back in and says, "Gave you forgot something last night." <laughs> Here's all the Here stuff that's supposed to be under the front of your Commodore. So, uh, yeah, we had, a lot of, we had a lot of fun. But in those days, you get away with it. I mean, you know, you know what it's like. It doesn't matter what form of sport and what form of life we talk about. You know, no one had a camera going. No, no one was talking. We were all just laughing and having fun. And, no, you know, no one lost an eye. You know, we didn't run into each other. We didn't feed one of the, ourselves into a fence or a tree or whatever. Just so happened we were all laughing so hard that – and Richo, he was commentating. Jimmy was commentating. So he, no, 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 no. And then he could see. He could see this drop-off earlier than I could. So Richo was laughing and thinking, Jesus, this is pretty wild. Anyway, we got away with it. I'm going to be very careful next time I arrive and enter the Simmons Plains car park next time I'm in Tasmania thinking of that story. Yeah. Um, that reminds me, too, of something I had for a bit later in the rundown here, but we're talking about um, – while we're recording this, is off the back recently of Scott McLaughlin's penalties at the Queensland um, Raceway Supercars round, and, and talking about how the world's changed to then and now of twenty odd years ago, it prompted me, Mark, to dig out what we call in our office the rap sheet, uh-huh. and reminds us of some of those great penalties from over the years. Well, you got a penalty once upon a time, and this is a different era for something you didn't do. Do you remember this? No, I don't. But do you remember losing thirty championship points and your team being fined ten thousand dollars because a team member did? We were talking about a bit of hooning driving. uh, 
did a burnout in a promo car out the back of the paddock at Eastern Creek in 2001. That's one that people have forgotten. Yes, I do remember that. That was very, very harsh. And, and How was world. your sense of humour when you were told you were being pinged 30 points? And Jason Bright, we should say, your, team, your teammate did as well. You know, I wasn't very happy about that. Funny, though. You, you know, my, my nature is... Not good? Sometimes it can uh, it can be a little... A little uh, um, overbearing, and when um, that news come through, and this was, was after the race <clears> event, <throat> after you finished, I think you've yeah. won the round or been on the podium or wherever you've been, yeah, yeah, no, it was not good, <laughs> and it was uh, a very angry M. Scaife back at the workshop <laughs> afterwards. Um, that there's a couple like that because I think there was one also where one of our staff was standing on the wall. Was it Clipsal? Uh, Think it was. Yeah, yeah. Think there was might- a few of those wall penalties. But there was a period there in, uh, I reckon, early two thousands to mid two thousands, where the judicial mm. and the fines and the penalties were constantly large. Yep. Um, probably, I thought over time they should go up with inflation, but they don't seem to have gone up because you guys were getting whacked thousands of dollars back then. I mean, you can probably. Talk to Scotty about things on the podium. You remember you got in trouble for not wearing the Dunlop hat one year, yep. Philip Island? How much do you reckon that cost you? Because I reckon all racing drivers remember how much they get fined for things because they never like paying for things. No, well, I was always – my deal was I was not paying for that because it was always good for us to have the right hat on. Which started with a B, not a D. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 2000 bucks that cost you. Which, which so that I- makes Scotty's poster at ten grand look. Bad value, which really. I, which I promise I didn't. I didn't pay. Did you get someone to sort that? I out certainly for you? did. I thought it was value for Bridgestone and Holden of those in that era. Um, but I agree with you. It's interesting, isn't it? The penalties um, have almost subsided in that way. It's it's very strange. And there's a there's there's a level of conformity which clearly you have to have from a commercial perspective. Everybody understands. But there's also there's a bit of rogueness. I like I like that thing. I like Scott a bit did. of cheekiness. Exactly. I like it. I pay the ten thousand yeah, dollars, just yeah. get on with it. It's good exactly. advertising money. It's the same as the, the Bridgestone and the Dunlop yep. um thing. I mean I th- I think I mean just talking about I don't want to get too into the negative land. I like to, to do lots of positive stuff. But I mean, you got done in a Sandown 1992 dash for cash, one of those three-lap sprints, two grand and a 10-second stop go for jumping the start. <laughs> Man, that's 20 grand today. I know, exactly. And Schenken was ruthless in those days. We had some massive fights. Um, but, but again, if you just said across the whole of your career and, and one of the things that you've got to take into perspective is there's, there's going to be goods and bads. Um, I probably got away with a bit, and I probably got caught for some too. So I reckon it's it's not too bad. And it all evens out in yeah. the end, doesn't yeah. it? While we're talking about HRT, or something you mentioned before, which I want to go back to, is the merch sales. I mean, I still see people down around the street wearing the two thousand and three jacket, or the two thousand and six jumper, or the two thousand and one hat. Talk to me about how big the merchandise program was for the factory Holden team in that late nineties, early two thousands period, because it was massive in terms of. The growth, it, it was the merch. Forget all the other teams. They, yeah, they had merch, but they weren't even close. But yep. the dollars were off the chart as a percentage of your sponsorship in a year. Well, it was just unbelievable. And that, again, that was that was John Crennan and Mark Curtis. Those two basically made a business out of something that was, you know, everyone was doing it out of, you know, utes and caravans and, you know, it was all low rent uh, in those days. Even even the factory Nissan team. I mean, we... we Bought a caravan and sold Nissan merchandise, but of of that era, we thought it was quite big business until you got to the Holden Racing Team thing, and wow, you know, it was really the second biggest sponsor of the team in those days. Based on second only to Holden, second only to Holden, bigger than Mobile Money, bigger than Bridgestone, bigger than yeah, that is staggering. Yeah, t-shirts were funding the factory team. Well, and 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 and, 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 and everything. You know, it was it was really well done. The level of distribution was fantastic. I mean, that was the thing. We Yes, we sold a lot of stuff at race weekends, but it was sold through all of the dealer network. Um, HSV was a big linkage. I mean, if you think about um, the, the corporate relationship and have a look at what actually transpired, that tripartite arrangement between Holden, HSV and HRT is unsurpassed. Mm. You know, it's, it's AMG with Mercedes-like. You know, it's that level of racing connectivity that wasn't just when on Sunday, sell on Monday. It was it was outside that. Mm. You know, that's where the merchandise stuff come from. HSV owners 
you know, there was basically 5,000 a year who were f- straight up Holden Racing Team fans. Most of them become uh, Club One or they become one of our members. Um, you know, <laughs> it was the number one sporting brand in Australia by a mile mm. of the day. Absolutely. Mm. So outsold anything. Outsold Collingwood merchandise by a mile. Mm. Yeah. It's a lot of T-shirts. It's a lot of hats. <laughs> and when you've got merch like that and demand, you've got to come up with new lines of things, don't you? What was the craziest level that they ever went to? Did they do a HRT bikini? There wasn't a, a, a scafy bikini or anything like that, was there? No, the well, all the drivers were allowed effectively to have their own little range. So you had a hat and a T-shirt and a polo, basically, uh, which which we ended up you know, going to a bit of science and getting some stuff properly designed and sold stuff and the thing worked well for the drivers in the day. But, <clears throat> yeah, we had G-strings, <laughs> HRT G-strings. I remember. And my policy was- From the catalogue, of course. My policy was I'd only sign them new. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a very weird time of our lives and that was their number one item for, uh, for a long time. It just They sold them like it was going out of fashion. It's all about comfort. So it is about comfort, young young nerds. But the other thing that was important was that it was scientific in a way that the car livery was almost personified the following year in the merch range. Mm. So we had to work backwards so far. No one ever knew this, but you know the car design was done way back in August, September. The September sign-off of the livery for the following year, that then created where the merch come from. That then got your order in. So then by the time we got to the Clipsal 500, wow, here's your new range. And uh, and people would just walk up with last year's T-shirt, take that T-shirt off, buy that new T-shirt and walk back out every year. Mm. Just, it, was just, it was just unbelievable. And, you know, that's, again, if you think about the history of car racing in this country that's um that's never been seen before it, it, it pretty much developed that um description that i think ended up being used on the membership program there for a while team red yeah because everything was red whether it was the the cars the well the team crew pants there for a while were red which i know some of the boys weren't that rapidly <laughs> wearing but yeah. um it really did build that connectivity and that inclusion from the fan world yep. from dealer land from people who owned HSVs, who were casual fans that dragged so many people in along the way. Of all of the, those bits of merch that you would have signed over the years, what was the strangest thing you would have ever signed in your in your time? Oh, I reckon the G-string was right up there. <laughs> I reckon that's probably, that's probably right up there. There's lots, but lots of car stuff, you know, that people would be people so People come in with airboxes. Airboxes and, and, you know, glove boxes and mirrors and, you know, door trims and whatever you like. You know, there was just stuff everywhere that was always a big part of it. And that was... You know, part of the whole customer intimacy thing, the whole connectivity with Holden of the day, even if it wasn't an HSV car, you know, it might have been an SS or it might have been even just a standard Commodore that someone had bought some stuff because um, we had that Holden by Design company going in those days too. So there was a lot of there was a lot of um, of uh, variety in terms of what people come along and 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 brought you into sign. But but you know, it, it does lead me back to where you started because. It does show the level of passion and it does demonstrate not just with people's wallets, but it demonstrates with foot traffic and support that when Holden Racing Team needed to have a new owner and the whole thing was, you know, under a, a, a really, you know, really big cloud and it was, it was, um, pretty nervous times, I didn't really have much choice other, other than, me wanting to do the right thing, and I think the right thing for me as a as a total perspective, not take the driver a bit away for a sec, from a total perspective, I'd do it again tomorrow. For sure, it shortened my driving career, um, and and yes, that's a that's clearly a legacy and a negative. Um, that if I kept on just charging on as a as a as a simple driver, um, then I then I would have. Uh, I, well, I would have been more successful and I probably would have had um, uh, a longer tenure. But if you, if you then go back and say, you know, did we do the right thing, I, I absolutely would do it again. So if you didn't buy it, who would have bought it? Oh, there was a, there was a lot There's of... There around. Yeah, there was, who, there who, was who, one who, Roland Dane bowling yeah, around so trying you, to buy it. Well, there's one reason to buy a race team, so you don't have to work for Roland. That's one way to do it. <laughs> now, well, there was plenty of people that were touted. I remember having some very firm discussions with... 
holding of the day to say that I'm definitely not driving for them. <laughs> um, but it, but it, again, as I said, you know, people who worked in the business, who loved the team and the whole thing, um, they just didn't know whether they were going to have a job. And that, you know, from a race team perspective, was uh, probably one of the most anxious, you know, three or four months that we've ever ever experienced. Of that HRT period, I think the <clears throat> couple of years where you and Lowndes were were teammates is one that people look back on. You share a desk these days at the, the Fox Sports Supercars Championship telecast. But talk to me about uh, the word rivalry is really interesting in sport. When people talk about the Brock Moffat rivalry, it wasn't like a um, Carlton Collingwood deep-seated hatred-type rivalry, but it was a rivalry of two blokes who are in different camps trying to do the same thing. Tell me about the Lowndes-Scafe rivalry, because I don't ever feel like we've quite seen the full level of how hard it was and how tough you guys would have been. As much as you were common goal, trying to do the thing for the team and also trying to do it for yourself, I don't think we've probably peeled the layers of the onion back enough there to see just how full-on it got between you two behind the scenes. And We might not have seen it on the track. Or were there times where that got tense between you guys? You've always looked like you've had a great relationship, but were there times where... Someone overstepped the line, or something happened that wasn't quite right, or that uh, feeling a bit slighted by that. Or there a couple of those? Surely there must have been a couple of those occasions with such a competitive couple of blokes who were so successful. Oh, I, I don't remember <clears throat> there being a time in my career where the level of energy and vigor around beating somebody was as high. You know, we we were desperate to beat each other week in week out, and from a complete team scenario that drove the team to a new level because we were demanding so much of the car and every single thing every bit of resource every single bit whatever the latest widget was it was how does it get onto my car before it gets onto his and and that level of competition was extraordinary um we had some times when we well i can clearly say this we never had a bad word absolutely did not have a bad word but there was a lot of tension. I mean, we we would, from a qualifying perspective, be desperate to out-qualify each other. Then whatever happened in the first or you know, opening laps of a race, there might have been a, a bump or whatever. <clears throat> there was certainly plenty of um, lively chat with Jeff Greck over the radio um, <laughs> in the day to either stop us from doing whatever we were doing. But, the, but there were days also where we – I remember one race at um, Eastern Creek where we just – lap after lap after lap after lap break the lap record and they couldn't slow us down and we were just so far in front of the field but it was basically us racing each other to win um which in the end you know isn't the smartest move from a team perspective but we were just so so um uh we were wired that way we, we just were so desperate to beat each other that didn't matter what was going on in in the world of sensible car racing. That was way outside the sensible car racing rules, and and it was it was fantastic. I mean, I, I don't begrudge any of that time because that was, and it was a bit weird because I arrived, and a lot of the people that I had either left Gibson Motorsport and gone to mm-hmm. Holden Racing Team, some of those had left under their own guys, or some of those had left because I asked them to leave. That was that. And then was, you roll in the door. And then I roll in the door. So the relationship in some of that was not that great. So it took me a while to find my feet and to get those guys back on board again and to get a sense of loyalty and all those things going. Um, and as uh, as time went by, it just it just it was just a, a really it was a a really memorable and and fantastic part of my career. That little era there, you you guys were actually only teammates full time for three years. Mm. So it's it wasn't actually a very huge long period of time because he went off and and did the deal to go to the. Evil side, wasn't it? The, the yes. silver and black car, as it was. Yeah. Um, then yeah, he ended up at Gibson Motorsport, the team that you'd come from. So it's ironic how those things all, all wheel around. One of the races in that time that probably gets overlooked by because you won those Bathursts in the Golden Child, and we'll talk about that car soon because our sleuth followers love the, the old race cars. But I think one of the ones that's overlooked, and we talked about it off air before we started, we pressed record, was the 2000 Clipsal 500 Adelaide where – you won through the rain on the Sunday to win the big trophy from the back of the grid in a much bigger field than we have now with a drive-through penalty in the middle of it. That surely 
is probably understated in your of all your races that you won for HRT. It was eighty of your ninety championship races. That one doesn't get enough kudos. Agree? Yeah. Look, if you if you sat back and said, you know, what, what were your best drives? That was certainly one of them. I mean, that, that was that was a drive where it was really slippery and wild. And because, as you said, coming back from, I think it was thirty eight cars in the field that 38, day. Thirty eight. Yeah. Um, it was around the corner, actually. Yeah, exactly. I was parked around the corner. I remember. I remember as I pulled up, I had to go and warn everyone that I was coming through. Um, and when you're in the spray, and you know you've you've at a street circuit like that with you know minimal room for error, um, yeah, you have to be disciplined. And uh, and it was a it was a really cool race. I mean, uh, I forgot the drive through, but yeah, with the drive through, that just added another little little uh, issue to the day. But it was it was a fantastic race. And one of those one of those ones where when you finish, and I was always my my worst critic because I, I was always so harsh on, on myself as to how I'd performed. But it was one of those ones where you have a beer afterwards and you say, geez, that was a big day. And and there are days like that where and there's probably maybe ten or twelve in the whole of your career, but there's 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 days where you you breathe a big sigh and you you know you have a beer and you and you bowl back to the hotel or whatever or you jump on the plane and, and you think to yourself I couldn't have done much better than that today. And in our crazy sport, it's so complex and there's so many things going on. You have to be that harsh on yourself if you want to do a really good job. I mean, I, I think if you're just a cruiser and you say, oh, I've made a mistake today and it's all fine, who cares? Well, you know, go and play golf. Mm. Um, but in in reality, um, that was a day I was I was pretty proud of. It was a very cool, very cool race. We haven't seen too many wet Street races over the period, and Adelaide is certainly one of those places that we don't get too many of them, so it's one that stands out for mm. a whole pile of reasons. But, yeah, 38 cars on the grid that day, and we don't have a field of 38 these days, and it doesn't look like we're going to have one anytime soon. Mm. So I think that's one of your records that cannot be bumped by anybody. I reckon you've got that one for a, a long, long, long time to come. Thanks, mate. Uh, the car that followed that was the Golden Child. After that 2000 championship, into that while we're in that glory HRT period, uh, you and I have talked about this car a lot over the years, but I know our fans love to hear about the Golden Troll, which is, for those who don't know, the 2001 and two championship winning car that won Bathurst back-to-back. It's one of only two cars to ever win Bathurst twice, but you don't have it anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I had it for a long time, and I, and I basically restored it back to the, the guys did um, – when I was uh, when I was leaving HRT, and part of the arrangement when Tom bought my share out was that you know I would basically get that car back out of uh, of the business, but exactly as it was run, so with all the gear and it, exactly as the car was, right down to what spring it had and what shock absorber mm. we used, engine number, the whole lot, everything, um, and it was pristine. You know, you could have Rick Wyatt, you know, looked after it afterwards, and uh, Scotty Elms was involved in making sure that it was all right from authenticity standpoint and going through all the books and making sure everything was logged the right way and all that stuff. So if you're attention to detail mad like we are, then um, it needed to be right. Uh, but it was it was an extraordinary car. One of those things that, you know, people ask me a lot about, um, you know, what was your favourite car? And clearly that's my favourite car. But it's hard to have a love affair with cars when you treat them so badly. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's... It's one of those ones where, as a professional racing driver, you do whatever you have to do to make the matchbox go around this particular bit of tar as fast as you, as you possibly can. So whether that's smashing it across curbs, firing across the grass, running into someone, whatever it is, bumping it off the fence, whatever whatever it takes, um, you've got to not have the the trepidation around you know having some affinity with the car and and. Uh, I don't think. I mean, one of the, one of, there's one of the great misnomers. You know, everybody used to say, you know, Peter Brock and Jim Richards, they were just so nice with the car. What rubbish! Absolute bullshit. I've seen the videos. That's so bad. <laughs> and and look, they were good. Their mechanical understanding, because they were both automotive people, their mechanical understanding of you know not grading a gear on a down change or something that was was excellent. They were very good at that stuff. But they would just torture the car. I mean, <laughs> when Jim Richards first arrived to drive for us. And I remember Fred said to him, you just drive the car as hard as you can. We'll fix it. <laughs> fix it? My God. The, those cars had never been driven like that before. And, and it, was, it, was, it was basically a really good demonstration for me. Um, I was you know, young and, and, I, and I was 
rap that the best driver in the world of the day was was in our team. But I didn't. I learn some. Oh my god! You know, you 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 just can't have a passion for the thing you're sitting in. If you do, you go slow. Yeah, you're not sitting there driving around thinking, oh, better not hit that curb because that'll affect the value of this when I buy it in 15 years' time. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of not in the in the, um, in the the flight plan. But, exactly. So that car was new, I think, from memory for the Queensland 500 in 2001. And I remember at the time it was a little different in the, the steering wheel and the PI dash that was within the wheel, which yep. had the attention of a lot of teams. It was very different to the standard steering wheel dash mounted behind it. That was a PI system from, yep. from memory. Yep. At the time that got a lot of attention. Yeah, it did, and it probably also got a bit of attention because it was the first car that we actually made the, if you looked in <clears throat> parallel with the sill, if you use the sill as the datum of the car, that the steering column was much more level. Mm. So we had a, a different apex joint in the steering column, turned the, the steering column up, and where the, where the steering wheel come out, it come out much more perpendicular instead of being on the angle in almost a traditional angled steering column location. So it was the first of those cars, and we we did a lot to make that nice. Um, so it wasn't just the layout of that. There was a lot of engineering in the back of it to, to do what – and I'd been complaining about it for ages. I said, if you're going to build another car – I don't want to have to reach for the top of the wheel so much. I want the, I want the wheel to be to come back and be squarer. Um, so the Richard Holway and the guys did a really good job of of making that happen. So yeah, the layout of it, it, it even from day one. So as soon as I wheeled it out at Phillip Island, it was the fastest car I've ever, ever driven there. I mean, I, on its first day, it did the fastest lap ever at that time, which is a good sign yeah. that things are gonna go good. Gonna go okay. So it won twenty championship races, including a couple of Bathursts along the way. Um, we've talked before about the Golden Child name that was being connected to it. And I think Craig Kelly is largely the the guy responsible, the former Collingwood AFL player who you've had a, a long relationship with over the years. Uh, it, it's one of those things that now when we say Golden Child in motor racing to racing fans, they know exactly what car, <laughs> they know exactly what period. Uh, it's pretty. It's a pretty good sign when your car gets a nickname that it's done something significant. Yeah. But there's a few other guys who nickname their cars. We spoke, we spoke to Jamie Winkup in this podcast. He names all of his cars. They're all females' names, and he refuses to tell us why they're called what they're called. Mm. I don't think naming cars is a good idea. No. I think not, it's dangerous. Not really. Or, are they ex-girlfriends? Or well, what are we, they? we don't know. We asked. Have you got a theory? Well, well it's got to have something to do like that, hasn't it? Don't you, you think? think? It's got to be. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll speak to Jamie about it and see if we can get an answer out of it. But But – so Craig Kelly come to run the business for me. Um, he was the CEO, uh, and if I had my time again, I would have put him on earlier because one of the things I tried to do was run it myself and drive the car and do all the things. So I should have put him on earlier. That was a that was a mistake. When I put him on, he was fantastic because he had a great sense of team. You know, after being a premiership player for Collingwood and understanding a lot of stuff, he was he was just outstanding. He but. The, the the staff loved him. I mean, he's the he's the biggest grumpiest big bullhead <laughs> on the planet, um, but but he's also the most likable and 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 lovely bloke. And um, that uh, that time when the golden child was effectively titled, it was because <laughs> we'd won Bathurst with it. We were doing a big dinner at the workshop, and my thing always. And you know, call, call me a bit crazy, but everything needed to be pristine. So everything was pristine. So, so the car wins Bathurst. <clears throat> We're doing a big sponsor function at the workshop, hosting a dinner in the in the workshop itself. And Craig wanted to leave the car absolutely as it finished Bathurst. And I said, "There's no way you can have people come in to our workshop and that car not be absolutely mint." And it's smashed with bugs, and the Holden windscreen banner's gone because it was a wet yeah, race, exactly. and it's, it's got rubber marks smashed. all over, and it's stone chipped, and it's you know all the bad things you know as cars finish a thousand k's. And as it turned out, <clears throat> um, he wanted to leave it like that and and have people you know in awe of being there next to the car that just won, and I wanted it back to back to concourse condition. <laughs> so he titled it The Golden Child as uh, as I was so passionate about it, and that, that stuck. And um, as a consequence, uh, I mean, if, if you think about that car and and you probably go through all those those wins and we were lucky in those days, but the, the 2003 win 
at uh, at Clipsal when we converted it to a VY and, and had Project Blueprint attached to all that change and all the things that had gone on in the off season with the receivership at TWR and stuff to win that that uh, Sunday was uh, was unbelievable on that car. So you no longer have it. We should confirm a private owner, a collector, has now got that car who treats it with great love yep, and affection, which does. is fantastic. He does. Riddle me this, Batman. If someone said, here, M. Scaife, here's 10 mil, go and buy yourself a couple of your old race cars, what would you go and get back if you had the place to put them somewhere and the finances to do so? Well, obviously, Golden Child would be the first one. Uh, the next one would be probably the 92 Bathurst GDR. I mean, that was an extraordinary car in the day. And then I've, I've got a love affair with the Lola that I had in, in Formula Holden, Formula Brabham days. Um, we built a couple of cars. So the first one was a, a spa uh, that we had built out of the Which UK. Which was the name of the car. It wasn't an actual spa if yes. someone was wondering. How do you yeah, yeah, a spa. a spa. It's a bit bubbly. but um, And a guy called Gary Anderson, who was a famous mm. designer of the day, he actually uh, was a Jordan Formula 1 designer. He designed the car. I had it built in uh, in the UK, and then we put it all together back in Australia, and and we had great success with it, with uh, a really good team of people in in the time. So that that's a car that I love. But the car that looked the best was the Lola that we was um, the latter. It was a car later on, which was Heinz Harold Frentzen's car from the Japanese uh, Formula Three Thousand Championship of the day, and we uh, converted that, and the car was just mint. Uh, everyone else had Reynards and stuff, and we were the only one in the day that had the Lola and. Um, uh, it was uh, it was from a just a beautiful looking race car. It was probably one of the most aesthetically pleasing looking cars you'd ever see. So that was uh, that was pretty cool. Do we know where to find it? Do we know if it's around? Oh, do we have to start a search gonna, for you? I think we need to start. Do we a have search to do Formula Holden sleuthing? Yeah, yeah, I think we do. Yeah, exactly. Because oh, yeah. we haven't got enough to do here. We just gave ourselves a, a whole job. New job. I noticed that Ford Laser wasn't in that list. Um, well, every Ford Laser. I think I, you junked them all up. Didn't well, you? yeah. Well, I was just about to say that every Ford Laser I had, they didn't look that nice at the end. But if that's how you, uh, that was a great series. I mean, I love one make series, and I mean, that's one of the things I like watching at the moment with the '86 series because you see so many young guys and girls. Um, come through the game in you know such equal equipment, and that was uh, that was something that I that I was really passionate about. You know, one make series racing in this country has a has a real pathway to it, and um, and that was a that was a pretty cool time. Remember, it was more money to win a laser series race than it was to win a touring car championship race. In 85 and 86. So what were those idiots doing in touring cars? They should have all been in lasers. <laughs> Would have been far more financially beneficial for all of them. Exactly. Uh, one of the things that um, we've talked to a lot of our guests about, and it prompts me when I look around your office, there's some memorabilia around, there's some of your old helmets around. Uh, racing drivers are either horrendous hoarders at 100% volume turned up level or don't give a toss, 0%, didn't keep anything, don't care. Where do you fall on that scale of helmets and suits and bits and pieces from uh, along the, the journey. Our, our fans love to know this stuff. Uh, well, I, I'm probably pretty good on keeping the helmets and suits of, of the respective eras. I've got every helmet, suit and boot of the respective year. And um, how many of each would you have had in a given year at, say, oh, HRT year? Well, probably four suits a year, but I've, I've kept one of every every year uh, throughout that whole time. Um, I've also just got some cool memorabilia stuff that I had over the course of the journey, stuff that I, you know, that I thought, oh, that's a, that's a fun thing to have. Um, uh, so I've got a few storage areas going. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I'm not, I'm not mad. On it. I'm, what I'm into is the authenticity of it. You know, I, I, at some stage when I organize myself to get a, another workshop going again or whatever, I'll, I'll put the stuff out because it's, it's, um, you know, it's something that, from a, a team perspective and stuff, there'd be a lot of guys like Rob Starr and Pete Schaefer and Matty Crawford and Richard Holway and a lot of those, a lot of that Rick Wyatt, those blokes that have been around our business for such a long time. And even from earlier than that, you know, when Jeff Greck first joined us in, in Nissan days and stuff, you know, there's a lot of those people that would uh, that be wrapped to see that it's still alive and alive and kicking. <laughs> Tucked away in a yeah. storage facility here, there, or everywhere around the place. Yep. What, what's your one bit that you would never ever part with? Is there a particular year that you won a championship, or a Bathurst, or a, a helmet, or a suit that's got a greater significance than than others? Uh, the two thousand and two stuff, two thousand and two helmet 
you know, it's probably the best year I've ever had. I mean, to win the championship and to win Bathurst in the same year was was, was pretty cool. I, I also have a real affinity. I mean, people don't really remember, but, you know, 90, one, two, three, they were Drivers' Championship and and Touring Car Championship, and that 25 to win the Touring Car Championship and the Australian Drivers' Championship on the same day. Yeah, not just the same year, but you wrapped on, it up at the same, same day. So you've got to go and drive both those cars all the time. It's probably a bit harder than most people think, you know, when you jump out of an open-wheel car and then jump in a GDR and then jump back in the other one. So um, there's some stuff that I've got, you know, of that, of that era also that I, you know, I really... I cherish those memories because you know there were times that I, re- I remember the stress and I remember how hard it was. So, um, and it wasn't like it was an easy win. You know, Mark Larkham and those guys were doing a really good job in open wheel racing in those times. Hang on, can we just record that again? Did you just say Mark yes. Larkham was doing a really good good job in those times? Can you confirm? He was. I did confirm that he was driving those open wheel cars very very well. I'm looking at Will Dale, our audio engineer here at the V8 Smith podcast. He's on the floor right yeah. now. He cannot believe what you just said. I'll get him to check the tape when yeah. we get back to work. Yeah, you can verify that. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> um. One thing we do to wrap it up here on the Sleuth Podcast is our top 10 shootout. And as a guru of top 10 shootouts in your time, plenty of polls along the way in that format, this is just a fancy way of doing word association. Ah. I'll drop a name or a reference of something. You give me the first word that comes into your head. (laughs) If you need two or three, it's okay. Right. But by the end of it, you should get down to one. Right. Some of our guests have struggled with the concept of one word. Okay. They have to go two or three. They don't quite get it. Anyway, let's fire into it. Tom Walkinshaw. Competitor. Golden child. Kind of did talk about it, but in a word. Love affair is two words, isn't it? It is, but if we put a hyphen in it, it. it's fine. It's one. (laughs) Peter Brock. Superstar. Craig Lowndes. Can I use the same? Oh, we haven't had this issue before. Uh, I'd rather a different word, but if it's the only word that matters. Uh, Well, I I think in a different generation, he's very much the superstar of of the era. Okay, I'll I'll let that that slide. Uh, Jim Richards. Best I've ever seen. That's more than one word. We'll hyphenate it all and it's all one word. <laughs> yeah. Best commentator by the sound of it for Simmons Plains Hire Car Racing too. I didn't know that. Didn't know that. Jeff Gretsch. Demanding. Greg Murphy. Kiwi. <laughs> no. Um, Non-obvious words, please, Mark. <laughs> uh, again, great competitor. I mean, I, can I just stop there just for a sec? Because one of the things about any of these things is that over the journey, there's just been so many great racing drivers that I've been lucky enough to, to, to race against. So if you think about, you know, me starting and coming in off the back of the Moffats and the Brocks and all those guys, then having a guy like Jim Richards, a teammate, and then go through an era where, you know, Glenn Seaton and John Bow and all those guys, and then you get to the end where all of a sudden all these superstars arrive, you know, whether it's Winkup or Van Gisberg and all those, all those guys now. So I've been really, really lucky to have a massive cross-section of, of competitors. So when you bring one bloke up like a Greg Murphy, who was uh, I always had the utmost respect for, and he was sort of a quasi-teammate in Kmart days, you, it's interesting how you feel about those guys because you, you desperately want to beat them, and then over the journey you end up sort of working together and they become half-good blokes. So the, <laughs> they so were crappy blokes back then, you but did they not were half-good like We did not like them at all. I used to call him the bonnet jumper. That's so The what? The bonnet jumper. He was the first bloke to get out and jump on the bonnet. Oh, right. So we'd pull up a Pukakoe and this goose would get out and the king of Pukakoe would get out and jump on the bonnet. Oh, God, Jesus Christ. Worse words than that. So I'm there like, you go. There's your word. Bonnet, bonnet jumper. jumper. Okay. Hyphenated. Let's go, let's go with that. Long answer. Hey, we got there. It's, it's good. It's good. Uh, John Crennan. Mentor. And probably your most overlooked and forgotten that he was your co-driver at Bathurst, but it worked out pretty well, Paul Morris. Yeah, great bloke. I thought you'd say the dude. Yeah, no, great bloke. He's, yeah. he's a lot of fun. Well, that's the top 10 shootout. You made it around. You didn't put it in the fence. 
You've survived. <laughs> um, we, we've got to call Murph the Bonnet Jumper from yeah, here on yeah, in too, by sure the way. We can. want to hear that in every Fox telecast <laughs> from here on in. We've really only scratched the surface. There's so much to talk about, but we decided to focus in on that HRT uh, amazing chapter of your career. Thank you again for having us here at HQ, and we look forward to doing part two somewhere down the track about lasers, supers, and formula holdings, and we'll find that <laughs> bloody Lola for you too. We will. Thanks, Nerds. Well, there you have it. Thanks again to Mark Scaife for joining the V8 Salute podcast powered by Holden and hosting us at his office in Melbourne. It was great to catch up. This is the first, actually, of a few podcasts we're doing this month to celebrate Holden's 50th anniversary of factory involvement in Australian motorsport and the great race at Bathurst. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you'll know as soon as we release the next episode. Now, if you love your Holdens too, we've got a great new book coming out your way. It's right up your alley. It's the official photographic history of 500 championship race wins for Commodore, a milestone that was brought up this year at Townsville by Shane Van Gisbergen. As it says in the title, it's got a picture of all 500 of the Commodore race wins in the Australian Touring Car Championship, the V8 Supercar Championship, and of course now the Supercars Championship. Rocky at Simmons in 1980, Scafi and the Golden Child in 2002, they're all there. If it was a championship race win for a Commodore, it's in the book. It's got all the stats, a rundown of the top 10 most successful drivers in Commodores, and a bit of a spoiler alert, Mark Scafi might just be quite high up on that list too. It's available to pre-order now. Head to our website, v8sleuth.com.au and click on store or head to authenticcollectibles.com.au and you'll find it there. If you're enjoying our V8 Salute podcast, make sure you leave us a review to help spread the word. Keep an eye on our website and our socials on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to stay up to speed. And until then, we'll catch you next time on the V8 Salute podcast, powered by Holden.